I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so happy to be joined today by my friend, Nicole Chung. Nikki is the author of the national bestseller, All You Can Ever Know, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, a semi-finalist for the Penn Open Book Award, and an Indies Choice Honor Book. She is currently a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and her work has appeared in numerous publications, including The New York Times, GQ, Time, The Guardian, and more. Her new book is called A Living Remedy. Nikki, I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. We were just talking about your excellent New York Times review. So congratulations again uh, on the record. <laughs> Thank you so much. I like my stomach has still not settled down after after reading that. I think I'll just continue to like, I'll probably just live on this adrenaline high for like the rest of my life. But it was a shock, and I'm really, really thankful. Good, good. I, I guess I wanted to start out by talking about what you've written is basically a follow-up to, to your original book, All You Can Ever Know, in some regards. And I'm wondering if you can tell me about what we needed to know from the previous book that would set us up for this book, like how you decided what kind of recap to include. Because yeah. you cover some of the same ground, but it's but it's different. Yeah, this is a ridiculous analogy, but I was like, you know how at the beginning of every babysitter's club book they would go uh -huh. through? I, I thought that too. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, actually, initially I had nothing really much from like the first book. I mean, I mentioned I was adopted. Of course, I was. there are, there are many of the same characters, <laughs> characters, people, my parents mm -hmm. and my sister 
who make appearances, my kids and my husband, but I really didn't think of it as a sequel at all. And I very much wanted it to stand on its own. I didn't want anyone to feel they had to read the first book to be dropped into this one and to understand what was going on. I probably didn't have enough connective tissue because I didn't think of myself as writing a continuation until my editor, Helen Atzma, very kindly, one of many gentle, like very sharp notes was like, I, I do think probably you need to include a little bit here because like many people will will not have read your first book and they won't quite understand this part. But I consciously tried to keep it to a minimum. So I didn't want any part of the book to feel you know, just like any part of the first. And I do think the scope is is obviously quite different. And but yeah, it was it was sort of something that I did in the second draft after I already had the first was like, go back and see, okay, wh what do people need to know? Like, that's, that's an excellent question that you pose to like, understand. Yeah. And, and does the act of narrowing it down to what you need to know kind of change the way you look at the previous book or, or your life or any combination of that? That's a good question. Um, maybe one way to, to answer is to say, like, I, I was really conscious in the first book, too, of doing the same type of work. You know, you're doing a lot of that active memory work, which can be really difficult to write memoir. And then I remember sort of like holding up different memories in my head and, and thinking, like, does the reader need to know this? Do they need to know this to mm -hmm. understand this, this particular story? Which in the case of the first book was the story of like being a transracial Korean adoptee and why I decided to search for my Korean birth family and then what happened when I did. And in some ways, like that, that book has a much narrower focus and, and scope, and it almost made it easier then to, to look at those memories and moments from my life and decide like, okay, what belongs and what doesn't, because it was extremely focused on this one, one aspect, a major aspect of my life that touches on a lot of other aspects, but you know, if it didn't have to do with my feelings or my experience of an adoption, it kind of got left out of that book because there was only so much it would hold. So like with this book, like it was, it was daunting. Like it was much harder given the story I was trying to tell about my family, about how I became aware in the way you do growing up of money and class and your family's situation and like where you are in the world. And, and what else is out there? All of that is like slowly accumulating childhood and adolescent experience. And then I, I was like, everything is relevant to this book, but I can't mm -hmm. write everything. Like I, I didn't want to write. Nobody wants to read 900 pages about my life. I know that. And so I think the act of winnowing it down was harder, but at the same time, it helped so much that A, I had that first book. Like I had that that practice doing that particular type of work. And then I just had a little more confidence and, and maybe some of this is being an editor for years as well, but like figuring out what belongs in a story and what doesn't, hopefully without leaving the reader with like too many unanswered questions. Like, but I'm, I'm sort of like building scaffolding. What do you need to follow me on this journey we're taking? And it's, it is like a very challenging thing, but to your question, I do think it makes you reevaluate a lot of moments and events and maybe even relationships in your life a bit. And that's always, I mean, that's that's actually part of the fun and part of the scary part of this genre, I think, because it really can upend things you thought were settled. Totally. And and you mentioned in this book that there is some emotional fallout from the previous one. Like just the, I mean, one of the things that we learn in both books is that you were adopted as as a newborn and 
the common wisdom at the time was, well, your parents don't see color. You can just blend right in and nothing will go wrong. And I think we've talked about that a lot. And um, it must have been hard for them to have this book out in the world that showed that not that they were wrong, but they were wrong. They were told the wrong thing. I mean, I think it was helpful that by the time the book came out, it wasn't like that was the first time that we'd right. ever had these conversations. <laughs> like I would have felt pretty awful, like just giving them the book and being like, here you go. <laughs> We've never actually talked about race, <laughs> but like, here's a whole book, you know, about my experience as a transracial adoptee. It was really hard, like borderline impossible to have those discussions when I was growing up. And and part of that really was the era and the advice they were given by like so-called adoption experts. But some of it was also, as you see in A Living Remedy too, like my parents were dealing with like a lot of their own crises. And I was coming of age, like hitting adolescence and going into high school while they were dealing with like significant medical challenges. And so much of our day-to-day, month-to-month was about, well, I mean, not not to make it sound more dramatic than it was, but but... I know looking back in ways that I did not know growing up in their house, looking back, I can see just how much, how much they were dealing with and how much I didn't understand at the time. But yeah, we, we always struggled to have those discussions about race and adoption. And we did have many more of them, like when I was an adult. So I would say in my twenties and into my thirties. And so by the time all you can ever know came out, it, it wasn't like any of that was surprising to them. And it's interesting, like they, I think like many parents of writers, they didn't really understand my career, or like what compelled me to do this. And that's fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they were like incredibly supportive of that book and of me. And at one point, you know, my dad said to me, it was, I, I mentioned this in the book, like, he's like, this isn't the book we would have written. And that's okay. Like, it's the book you wrote. It's based on your memory and your perspective. And like, he was basically saying that's that's very valid and it's true, which I thought was, I thought that was true and also a very generous response. Absolutely. Especially, I think, for people who did not really understand always like why I was writing true stories about my life at all. So I, I'll, I'm really thankful, thankful for that. But yeah, it was definitely like a scary thing. I remember, first of all, writing a book at all, as you know, and then like showing it to your family, you know. <laughs> it does not get more real than that. <laughs> I, I I can't even imagine. When it comes to hiring, you need to trust your gut. But what if you could give your gut some help? When you want to find quality talent fast, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like matching, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor the job. Indeed does the hard hiring work for you. Sponsor a job and we'll match you with quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description right when you post. With Indeed, you can start hiring fast. 
Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. Visit Indeed.com slash Maris to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Maris. Indeed.com slash Maris. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, so let's talk about your childhood in, in, in regards to what you now know is that your parents were dealing with a lot of, a lot of emergencies at the time. You say in the book that you, they were living from emergency to emergency, which is mm-hmm. like a, an extreme version of, of paycheck to paycheck. Cause that's, that's, it goes beyond that. Yeah. So I, I do want to make sure I'm addressing the part that you're you're asking about, but do you mean like in terms of like health emergencies and yes, yeah, yeah. So well, and um, and I guess and I guess finances in general, right? Like, right. Well, they're um, connected in their yes, case, of right? course. So yeah, yeah. I mean, as there for so many people, the first major medical emergency, you know, I think of our of our lives was my mother's breast cancer when I was a freshman in high school, and. I remember we didn't talk that much about it. It seemed to be like over very quickly. She was fortunate, treatment worked, she was in remission, but there was like emotional fallout that I think we didn't really talk about. And partly because it was such a hard thing for my mother to talk about. And then there was financial fallout because it wasn't just that she'd had to take like some unpaid time off. It was that about six weeks, I believe after her mastectomy, my father lost his job. And so, and that just kind of was the first, like the first big thing. We lost health insurance, which we only had off and on, like throughout my childhood. And so when my mother's health issues started, she had different health issues that began just a year and a half, two years later, and had to have an emergency hysterectomy. But, you know, I, she had to have that in part because she didn't get treatment. Like she couldn't access treatment leading up to that. She had really bad endometriosis. She had uterine fibroids and she had ovarian cysts. Like I cannot believe she had all of that going on less than two years after breast cancer, but she did. And I I, I can't tell you like lack of insurance is the reason she didn't get treatment. But the fact is we did not have health insurance and she was in pain for months. And then one night I drove her to the ER because she was in agony. And that night she had the emergency hysterectomy. And I, I wasn't conscious of like all of that at the time. I was just responding in the moment the way my parents were to like a crisis. But looking back, I'm like, well, of course it probably was in fact a factor that she, we didn't have health insurance and she had these myriad health problems that weren't, she wasn't receiving treatment for. And then in the end, there was nothing but like an emergency surgery in the middle of the night, which they wound up in deep medical debt over. My father was also at this point, he'd been diabetic for many years. And so, I mean, it was obviously a different health challenge than my mom's, but like ongoing and was like never really able to access for years, like medications and just like support. He needed to learn how to manage that. Um, And yeah, those years, I think 
you know, there were very hard years later, but I think of those high school years for me as like a turning point for them and where things kind of like went from manageable, we're making ends meet, like we're doing okay, if not great to like, I mean, it's just, like I said, it's like emergency to emergency and all you can do is try to react. There's no, like, there's no real way to plan. There's no savings. There's no cushion. It's just like, you're just going from crisis to crisis. And that's such a terrible way to live, particularly because so many medical conditions are much more livable if you can catch them early. And if you have no opportunity to get help, then then you're already starting from a much worse place. Yeah. I mean, I would like, I didn't think about it at the time, but, you know, looking back, we only ever went to the doctor if we were sick and not just sick, but like, oh, my mom thinks I need antibiotics or my dad is having like pretty serious symptoms that have been going on for months and it's finally time to try to get them checked. So it, of course, like it, it wasn't like ongoing, like maintenance or preventative care. It was responding like to something, something that had gotten already out of control. So I don't know. I, I didn't really think about that at the time because you don't when you're young and healthy and there's not much wrong. But yeah, I do think just the care they didn't get in those years for the two of them in particular, like it obviously had really serious repercussions years, decades later. And even in terms of when you were talking about your teen years and your father's diabetes, I was, you know, I am also diabetic type one. I go to the doctor every three months and I have for decades. And your dad was not in a position not only to seek medical help, but like to live the very regulated lifestyle that I do and that so many people who are diabetic are able to do or need to do. Mm -hmm. It's true. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about his lifestyle. I mean, I'm I'm particularly thinking he managed a pizza parlor mm -hmm. and pizza notoriously bad for the blood sugar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he really, really loved it. And like, that's what was available, you know, of when course. he got... When he got a lunch break, which he did not get all the time, he told me many years later, like it was his job as manager to make sure everyone else got their breaks. Like, and that, that's good. Somebody should be doing that. But he was the last person to get breaks and meals and time off. If anybody called in sick, he was the one who went in. And so, you know, I remember him sometimes working just like straight through a week with no days off. I remember really, really long shifts. And yeah, there were many years he wasn't home for dinner, like with my mother and me, he was at the restaurant. So whatever he ate, it was like there. And he also just didn't have a lot of PTO really. Like it was hard to do those medical appointments that you were just talking mm -hmm. about. It meant like trying to get time off or a shift covered and it was really difficult. You know, I, I wasn't thinking at the time about how difficult this would be, but like now as an adult, just knowing like what it takes, it doesn't take much for your whole schedule to be like out of your control. In my case, like a sick child, you know, can really like change entirely how the rest of my week goes. And my parents were dealing with so much more than what I deal with as a parent. Um, so I don't know. I just, I mean, I remember him saying like, I don't feel sick. It's fine. I don't feel sick. But of course, so many conditions, you don't feel sick until something is very, very wrong. And he just wasn't able to access like the type of support and care he really needed to not have it get to that point. And then, of course, the other thing about our wonderful country is that 
if you do have an illness and you have problems with it, you are more likely to be blamed. Even like there are times when I have my blood sugar is high and I feel like I've done something morally wrong. <laughs> and that's a lifetime of people concern trolling and being told that you have to do everything that you can do all the time forever and not have a flare up. And it's like all on you, right? There's this obsession we there's this obsession we all have with personal personal obligation and responsibility. And I've been thinking a lot about this in the way it just lets entire systems off the hook. You know, a, a parallel to that is the way I blamed myself for not being able to help my father more. Like, like I could not pay for the healthcare he needed out of pocket, especially in the years when he needed it most. It just wasn't, I just, I wasn't a millionaire and I did not have that kind of money. But like, I mean, I blamed myself for so long and it, then I, I don't know. It's still, I still have regrets, right? And like, I don't know, I could have not worked in publishing as well, I guess. But the the truth is like, I mean, individuals, even like communities, communities can do so much, but they cannot fully compensate or fill in the gaps uh, in a broken safety net. You know, the way that, that benefits and assistance and social programs are gate kept and means tested and you have to prove you're worthy and you have to prove you're deserving and you've got to be more worthy and more deserving than those other people. I mean, there are just like so many points, not just with the healthcare system, but where the entire safety net really failed my family as it fails so many. The thing I can't get over again is just like for me, it's individual tragedy and loss, but it's a it is like a collective, collective tragedy in this country that so many people are experiencing every day. And, and that's really kind of why that was an aspect of my grief that I almost surprised me when I realized how angry I was about this. And it was a part that I really wanted to try to face head on, like in the book. It's so rough. One of the, you, you touched on this, but one of the things that really struck me in the book, and I'm happy to hear that you've been thinking about it a little bit, and the amount of guilt that you personally felt about not being able to be near to your parents as they were dying. And it was just physically not possible. But that doesn't necessarily prevent you from feeling okay about it. It was just so hard and... The reasons I couldn't be there were were so different for the two of them. Like, I mean, with my dad, I mean, I couldn't be there right when he died because the actual moment, like we did not see it coming. We didn't know it was going to happen. And but I wasn't able to visit, you know, as much as I wanted. It was a period of life where, like, I mean, if we were going to see each other, it meant someone was putting flights on a credit card, you know, like neither. I want to stress, like, I have a lot of class and educational privilege my parents did not have, but I was in this period of life where there just wasn't, like, enough. And it was really hard. And then with my mom, of course, like, by then, I'm finally, like, financially stable. <laughs> and and then she enters hospice as, as the first COVID cases are being reported. And my last trip to see her was supposed to be, like, March 2020. And, of course, it didn't happen. And she died that spring. You know, I, I don't know, I've actually been trying to brace myself and I, I hope it doesn't happen, but I don't know. I wrote an essay about that conflict that I was actually feeling at the time for Time Magazine. And I mean, an overwhelming flood of people saying like they were in the same boat and they, they understood and they were sympathizing. 
But I did get some comments that were like, like, you know, so you chose not to be with your dying mother because oh, like on. people are trying to control our lives and curtail our freedoms and like you fell for it. So yeah. I'm, I have been bracing for like a wave of that with the book. Honestly, I like, I hope it doesn't happen, but like, I mean, if those people think I haven't said that to myself, like so many times, not in those exact horrible Trumpy words, but like, like if they think I don't have regrets or questions that I won't always wonder, like if I'd known about COVID, what we know now, or like if I'd been vaccinated or if my kids had been vaccinated, like if they, a million other things, if they think that I don't think about that all the time, that I won't always live with those questions, like, you know, I don't know what to say, but, but yeah, it was, it was obviously just like deeply painful after expecting because she had cancer, because I thought at least we'd get warning, I would go and I would be there not being able to do that. Like, because of the pandemic, like I will always, that's just always going to like live in me. And it's, it's something like my, my kids will have to live with. I mean, that memory of all of us live streaming the funeral from our living room, you know, they, they knew that wasn't typical. They knew that wasn't really right and that and yet it was like the the option that was available to us you know and again just like the common thread is that I know this is true for so many people who lost loved ones especially in those early months of pandemic and every time I write or speak about it you know people tell me like us too this happened to us too we still haven't had a funeral for like this loved one and it's just and it angers me how much many other people want to look away from that experience like that time and that pain that people are still carrying but I, I don't think we can or should be looking away from that it's just like I know it's hard to face but I do not think we can forget that so you know I tried very hard to not have the pandemic in in too much of this book but of course it you know it's very much related to how you know how I was able to to grieve my mother and and of course at the time your mother would have been incredibly su su susceptible. Sorry, couldn't say that word. Incredibly susceptible. Incredibly yeah, susceptible to to illness, and mm -hmm. so then you're taking that added risk, and it, it's a no win situation. Like anybody judging what you did clearly has their own problems. But I I did not write about this, but I had a relative who like made it really clear that they thought I should. I should be there. And they said, like, she's dying anyway. And like, first of all, as if I didn't know that. And I, I understand the thing is, I did understand what they were saying. And again, it, these were like thoughts I was having all the time. If it had just been me, probably if I didn't have children, if if a lot of other things like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, I, I could have made a different choice. But I just remember feeling so trapped. And like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just risking her, but her caregivers, like her, the hospice nurses, like, and then my own kids and my family. And in the end, like, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. But yeah, it's still, and it's still like the most painful thing to kind of think about. And I don't know, it, like, I'll, I'll just like never be over that. You know, you don't get over that. I'm so sorry. And you, you write so beautifully about the forms that your grief takes. And that is, there is a guilt and anger aspect of it for sure. But you also say, and I get this, that you are an expert at grieving under capitalism mm -hmm. because yeah. you just you kept going. 
I mean, yeah, it's like you, you don't have a choice. And that's the thing about capitalism. It doesn't really give you one. It just makes you feel like it's your fault for not being able to better navigate, you know, structural failings. With both of them, with my dad, like, I mean, it was my first major loss. I didn't know what was normal. I didn't, there wasn't like a set bereavement policy at work, I remember. So I was like, oh, like, what do I need? What should I ask for? I don't know. Like, I took a little bit of time. I took that week for the funeral, but, but then I was back. And then I remember thinking, like, I cannot let this burden anybody else that I work with. Like, like I just have to make sure that it doesn't affect anybody else in a negative way. Like, I didn't want someone to have more stress or extra work or something. So that meant, okay, I had to keep it all going and keep it together. And it wasn't just work, of course. It was like parenting never stops. And right. all the different like volunteer things I was doing. And, and I was about to... <laughs> I had like a cover reveal like a month after my dad died. And then it started the whole like book promo machine um, with all of its pressure to say yes to everything and to be very, very grateful, of course. And and the thing is, I was grateful. but Of course you were. But I was also like deeply depressed and like just not taking care of myself. And like, thank God for therapy and like a lot of other things. But I actually, I was like better prepared, I suppose, to mourn my mother without that same pressure or like self-punishment. Like I think in the two years between their deaths, like I had actually realized how I grieved my father was more about punishing myself than real grief. And I didn't want to do that again. And emotionally, like it was, of course, wrenching to lose my mom. But I was in like, how do I say this? I was in a better place emotionally and mentally to to not not like hurt myself so badly you know, and attack myself and blame myself. Like it, it was still very, very difficult, but I don't know. I mean, I was able to say like, look, I'm taking a week and then I'm taking another week. And I, I don't know. I, I think I had just kind of like learned that to have a little more respect for my own humanity. And that proved to be like really a, a hard one lesson, but like very important. So, but yeah, it, I mean, it, it is, it's extremely hard to find any space for grief or to be gentle with yourself, especially after a trauma in, in our culture. And I know that the, the fact that I was able to do, to have any kind of like bereavement at all, either time is, is a great privilege that many people don't have. So, I mean, sorry, just like one more way, like capitalism enters in, into this, like one of the hardest times was actually, you know, while my mother was dying and when I was trying to like support her from afar and help her figure out her care and help her make like medical decisions. Like that was a truly, truly awful time. And I felt like so overwhelmed. I remember thinking like I wanted to take some leave from work, but like I could not take unpaid leave from work because my, I was supporting my mother financially at that point she couldn't work. And so I was paying her rent and I'm just like, I can't, I can't stop working because I've got I've got this responsibility. So sometimes you can actually know what you need or what would be good for you. And it's just, it's just inaccessible, right? And it's like not the fault of, you know, individuals or my mother or, or my employer. It's just reality. I needed to keep working to be able to take care of her. And I knew it was kind of at the expense of my own mental health, you know, but it was, it was kind of the only choice I had at that point. Nikki, I'm so sorry. And so let me let me change keys for a moment and talk about some coping mechanisms, including my favorite one, which is dogs. 
Yeah. I feel like I was so heartened when Peggy appeared uh, <laughs> in the manuscript to like save the not save the day. She doesn't just well, kind of capitalism sins, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we got her six months after my mom died. And um, I mean, you remember November, December 2020, it was a bad time. Nobody was doing well. And for my kids, they were doing like six hours of Zoom school a day. And we had no idea when it was going to be over, right? It's pre-vaccine. Just like we were all surviving, you know, yeah. but nobody was thriving in this house. And we got Peggy and she just kind of like crashed through all of our I don't know, like this, this like wall of sadness and like isolation that had been building up. And we still didn't see a lot of people. We still like missed, missed my parents, missed a lot of people we love, but like, you know, it isn't, you have a dog and like, sometimes you're just responding to like what they need in the moment. Like at first, all I could do was like kind of react to her. And that was, it was actually really nice. Like part of my brain turned off and then it was just like, okay, like what does this small being need? Oh, she needs to go out again, you know? I know she got us out of the house more. Like all the things they say about dogs, especially like the comfort aspect is very true. I didn't know she was going to do that. I mean, basically dogs are magic, but like, I, I just, I don't know. My friend Jess Zimmerman told me once, golden retrievers are like pillows that love you and it's true. So like we basically trained her to be a comfort animal with like lots of like cuddling and hugs and like, like she, she still, like you can still like really rely on her for that. So I don't know. I think also bringing Peggy into the book became a way for me to talk about my anxiety, which is not something I've really like written about before. And I was trying to think of a way, way to do it that would, would make sense and also have some levity. And, and she was kind of a way to do that because I, I don't know, I, because she's such a comfort and because she makes my anxiety go down so much. And also because my anxiety reminds me sometimes of a, like a guard dog, like it's just looking out for me. It just wants it me joins. to be aware. Exactly. And like at times it could even save you, but like ultimately you can live with it and be aware of it and not always be thinking about it. Like, I don't know. I just, it was like important to me to kind of talk about that and and try to make a connection too to like my mother's anxiety and yeah writing about Peggy was kind of a surprisingly fun way to do that so yeah she's great she is the emotional center of the family <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much I can pepper you with more questions but I will let you go before we go though will you please recommend some books for us Yes. So some of these are books I like have not read yet because I just got them, but I just got Kelly Link's White Cat Black Dog, which might have been like the first book of 2023 I pre-ordered. So I'm like so excited about it. And then Rainsford Stauffer's All the Gold Stars, Reimagining Ambition mm. and the Ways We Strive. I love this book. I think it'll be like you. I just, I know so many people, I particularly women, but, but everybody who are, who's really been like reevaluating reconsidering our relationship to ambition and what it can be channeled toward other than like the things we've always been told it should be channeled toward under capitalism. And I really love the way Rainsford writes about, about it in this book and kind of reimagines it also as something that can be funneled toward like our communities and our own mm -hmm. care. That is great. It's coming out, I think in May, June, sorry. And it's, it's, I think it's really good. And then I am excited for Lydia Kiesling's Mobility. I just got my galley. Like I love her first book and I can't wait to dive into this one. 
And then like my thing that's been helping with my pre-pub anxiety a lot actually is reading, like I'll read one chapter from A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea Coast by mm. like Dort, Dortha, North, I don't know how to say her name, but it's like beautiful. And the way she plays with like, just like narrative and voice, it's, it's lovely. I just find it deeply relaxing. So I like read a chapter to myself as a treat, like when I need a break from book stuff and it's. It's been lovely. So those are some of my recommendations. I love that. And that's that's really good advice, actually. Listen, read read a chapter of that book every time you're, you like, desire a treat. <laughs> I'm like savoring it. Like I'm reading it really slowly on purpose. I don't actually want it to end. So it's been great. I love it. Well, Nicole, A Living Remedy is out now. And congratulations. And I, I hope that a lot of people will read this and find a lot of solace in, in your own personal experiences. Thank you so much. I'm really glad we got to talk. I'm grateful to you for, for inviting me. Me too. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.